Our passage this morning, as the bulletin indicates, comes from Hosea, several places, Hosea 1, Hosea 3, and Hosea 11. If you'll look at the worship guide, you'll see those exact verses. And what we are doing, we are continuing our series again on the Ten Commandments, and we're remembering that for the Christian, because we have the freedom of Christ, He fulfilled the law, and we have Christ, we're found in Him. Rather than the law being obscured and pointless, it's actually more vibrant and more freeing because it no longer threatens us. And so we can actually look at the deeper meanings of each of the Ten Commandments and dig deeper than we would if we were trying to live by the law. See, if we were trying to live by the law, it would threaten us. And so what we would do is we would reduce its meaning to something achievable on our own. But you can't. You need Christ. So what we're going to see then is the vibrancy of the law. We're going to continue to look at at each of these commandments. And this morning, of course, is uh, on adultery. And we're going to have a passage that's going to serve sort of as the backdrop, which will be from Hosea. And just to give you a little bit of background to Hosea and and the prophets in general, at the time where Israel is a divided kingdom in the Old Testament, they were very close to being captured. And then the prophets are the ones writing to them, warning them both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Different prophets wrote to different ones, some to both. And they would warn them about what was coming, but they'd also comfort them once the capture came, once they had been taken away. And so with Hosea, he is writing, and and God is letting Israel know he still loves her, even though she's been a wayward child. That's kind of the idea behind Hosea. One other thing to remember is, we talk about major and minor prophets. The minor prophets aren't less important but they just wrote less material. So we called them the minor, I don't, we, like I helped, I didn't help. I heard it and then I repeated it. Um, they're called the minor prophets. But one of the interesting things is they often illustrate the point. So if you think of Joel, in that point, even though Joel's not doing the illustrating, locusts, there's this kind of huge driving metaphor. So each, some of the prophets have these huge metaphors going on. Uh, and Hosea himself becomes a part of that metaphor. So he is actually, you're going to see, called to do something very difficult. So hear the reading of the word. We're going to start at chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. By the way, I gave you fair warning. So, verse 3, he went and he took Gomer the daughter of Geblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, they had several children, and each of their names meant something particular. There were also children she had, not by Hosea, continuing her lifestyle. In chapter 3, and the Lord said to me, Hosea is now speaking, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come 
and fear to the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. And then chapter 11, we'll look at verses 8 through 10. God is speaking, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are a roaring lion, and we are your children. We are prone to wander. God, I pray this morning through your spirit we would see freshly the beauty of your love. We would commit ourselves to you wholeheartedly, and that you would revive us again. In your name we pray. Amen. And so we come to these Ten Commandments, and and we look at them, and a, a, an image that came to mind, I'm sure it's not perfectly accurate, is a prism. That from the Ten Commandments, you have the commentary. The rest of the law really is like the rainbow. It's the commentary on the beam of light. And so from adultery, then, we get all of the sins of sexual sin, right? Now, some commentators will, will try to narrow the scope of the Seventh Commandment, and that, that may be valid, but most will come around and say it includes all the scope of sexual sin, like, so it's the, the, all the rest is commentary, right? Similar to murder. We talked about murder a few weeks ago, and then you can go into like all the different ways murder can happen, whether it's incidental or accidental and all that. Well, the question that we're looking at this morning, though, is how does adultery stem from that beam of light? What is that beam of light hitting the prism? Right? The first and the most important law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second one, Jesus tells us, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that central beam is what turns into the Ten Commandments, and then that turns into the rest of the commandments. Does that make sense? So what we're looking at then is this question. How is our adultery linked to our lack of, of love of the Father? Our lack, how is that beam separating? How is, it, how is it that our faithlessness to God is translating into faithlessness with others. And what we're going to find this morning is it's God's faithfulness to you. It's his pursuit of you. It's his direct love of you, right? Though you and I struggle with waywardness, we're going to look at that spiritually as well as the physical ramifications, his, his faithfulness is what allows us and frees us to be faithful to each other, to him, and primarily to our spouse. That's, that's the goal of this message, but also to others, right? So, that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what is adultery, the roots of it, adultery, and all the points are going to have the word adultery, so cheer up. Thirdly, the cure for adultery. So, what is adultery? Sin, yay, we're having more fun words. By the way, Shane, I appreciated your, your, your sport illustration. Had I done the confession of sin, I would have used a sports illustration. Anyone want to guess which sport I would have chosen? Uh, for those of you that don't know, I went to OU. So, sports revealed sin. Thank you, Shane. Um, I just had to have a little bit of levity there. I was getting too serious. Sin is a distortion of truth. I remember hearing a professor say that, and I had to kind of work that in my head. There's a tendency to think of sin as being its own thing. And of course, in a way it is. 
but it's always a turning of something good in on itself. Or said another way, it's turning a gift of God. You know, we receive his gifts, but it's cutting him off, and it's taking the gift. And so sin, um, for example, let's say greed. I'm called to go out and provide and earn a living and, and carry out the creation mandate. That's my calling. Greed would be me doing that apart from God, doing it for my own gain, right? I'm turning in on myself. So when you come to adultery, you have to ask, what's the, the, what's the gift behind it? And of course, the answer is marriage. And so we want to talk just a few moments about what is marriage and, and what is sex for, that's the fun stuff, to get into what adultery is. In, the, in, in Genesis, God says, let us, the Trinity, create man in our image. Male and female, he created them. And so the Bible, the Bible from the beginning all the way through explains that marriage is not just its own relationship that exists on earth, but it's a picture of the Trinity. It's a picture of who we are in God. And so a man and a woman come together, and in a mysterious way, they create a new flesh, a new person. And their job is not just to have sex, though they do, their jo- hopefully. Their job is to actually fulfill the creation mandate together. What is it that God's called this family, this couple to do in marriage. Now that being said, we know that there are unmarried people, and there will be many people who will always be unmarried, and, and, and this is, um, remember, a, a creation ordinance. We also know that our Savior Jesus was never married, right, and the Apostle Paul. But the, the idea is theologically sound that, that it's in marriage where we fully and rightly see how we're connected to the Father, God, the Trinity actually, all three of the Godhead, members of the Godhead. And so then the question was, how does that fit together and how does that lead to the sexual act? Um, and to just get really awkward for a moment, uh, actually to be unawkward, this is an illustration that's going to be very calm and relaxed. Emily and I, still calm and relaxed, were talking to a RUF campus minister, and I wish he wasn't there for the conversation because he said he loves mowing his yard. That's why I wish he wasn't there. I don't like mowing my yard. You can always people who love mowing their yard because they say cutting the grass. That means they like doing it. Mowing the yard, I hate doing it. This guy loved cutting the grass. And what he said was, I love to cut the grass, finish that up, put everything away, turn the sprinklers on, go to the porch, sit down, and have a beer, an ice cold beer. Now, if you're a teetotaler, insert the word tea or coffee. But what do you, Now, imagine hearing that story and all I could hear was, he loves beer, right? See, the beer was not the only thing. That was sort of the, the icing on the cake. Okay? You see where I'm going with this? The sexual act in a marriage is not the whole thing. That's what our culture says. Our culture would be like Homer Simpson watching that guy and going, beer. And, and the point, he would, he, if he's sipping his beer and he looked out at the lawn and he saw a complete strip that was missed, he'd be a little bit unsettled. He'd probably set that beer down and go cut that down and then you know, come back and have his beer again. They link together is the point. And in the Bible, the, the act of sexual, uh, the, the sex, sex, I just always want to make it sound so adult, is not the whole thing. It's part of the relationship, right? Now, we, we believe it's not just to have babies, though it is. But actually, biblically speaking, it's to know. That's the Bible language, right? To know each other intimately well. To, to look on each other and to experience each other But let's be clear, that can't just happen in sex. That happens in marriage, 
which also involves sex, and in that portion of the marriage, that's where it's happening in a, in a particular way. Why do I say it like that? Because there are people who do want to have the beer without the mowing, and it doesn't work. I had, a, I had an REF student who um, came to me in her first semester, and she, well, I don't remember why we were even meeting, if I initiated it or not, but she was just broken up. Um, she was broken about a breakup. But, but we had been at school for like three months. So I'm kind of like, how possibly could you have been this connected to this person? Like, we talked about it. I'm like, tell me a little bit about what you, you know. Finally, I said, did you get physical? Well, she kissed. I'm going, you're really upset. So we kept talking. Finally, she confessed that they had basically been living together in the dorm room like they were married. And in that relationship, they were having the beer, pretending to be married. And then, you know, what he says to her is, um, he sort of broke off and started shacking up with another girl and said, we're just friends. And what happened for her was she had physiologically known this person or allowed herself to be known. And so sex in that context, that's what it is. And when it's outside of that context, it doesn't work. And this is why Christians look at the world and say, here's how we define sex. And the world looks at Christians and goes, you guys are so stuck in the mud, Right? You are so backwards. Let me tell you the future. Let me tell you where the world's going, right? You are so backwards. Let me tell you where it's going. And we want to say, let me tell you where it's been, okay? The pagan gods, the, the pagan worship included sexual acts. That's nothing new. Right there in, in, in Exodus and Leviticus, you see a lot of laws talking about homosexuality, bestiality. It's not that the Bible doesn't know these things exist. That's not the point. The point is, the Christian is saying, we all have urges, the Bible teaches, right? We all have desires, but that's not what defines truth. And so, just because someone's attractive, and you go off and you have a relationship with them, doesn't mean that was the right choice, right? And so, we, and the world wants us to work backwards. The world wants us to start with urges, and then... What, whatever comes after the urge, and then say, oh, by the way, I think we're going to have a relationship now. And the Bible wants to turn that completely around. It says it starts with, who, is, who are you called to love? Who do you want to know? Let me say this another way. Um, often when you read about adultery, the problem the Bible has with it is not maybe our current modern concern. In, in modern ears, you'll hear of affairs, and you'll think, oh, the spouse that was, you know, that was, cheated on. And you, and you should. Your heart should be torn for that person, no doubt. And the Bible clearly cares for that person. But often the Bible's language is when a man has an affair or cheat, you know, with a woman commits adultery, he has to marry her. And you think, that's it? That's the punishment? Now, part of that is because God's dealing with a very hard-hearted people. We see that in, in the Gospels, right? When, when they ask Moses, they ask Jesus about divorce, because Moses knew your heart was hardened. But part of that's also to show that adultery, that the trying to separate the sex from the marriage, is taking God's beautiful gift of marriage and completely ripping it apart. And the question is, do you love that? I mean, if every time a lustful thought crossed your mind, you pulled out a sheet and walked, do I love this person? Would I give them my life? Would I want to spend every waking moment with them? Would I, you know, pretty quickly you'd sober up, right? You go, uh, okay, uh, I'm going to keep focused. 
but yet we don't allow that because we're falling into the sin of the culture and allowing our hearts and minds to engage in the urge separated from the relationship. So, we're going to go a little bit deeper. Jesus, in Matthew 5, very famously says that the sin of adultery is not just the physical act. It begins in the heart. So he says, even when you look upon a woman lustfully, and clearly this applies to the women looking at men and all the other possibilities, when, it be, when you begin to do that in your heart, you've already committed that sin. Why does he say that? Well, as Coach Parrish would say, now who's Coach Parrish? I went to UCO my freshman year. He taught health. It was the greatest class ever because it's a coach teaching health. Okay? He's a volleyball guy. He's wearing the, the, the jumpsuit, and he had the accent, and he was hilarious. And his fa- the favorite talk was the sex talk from Coach Parrish. Everyone listened, and everyone showed up that day. We're all in the gymnasium listening. And, okay, this is just, just bear with me. He says, you know what the biggest sexual organ in your body is? Everyone's like, what? Your brain. Okay, now I, I see where he's going. What do you, what do you, I'm, that's all I remember from that class. But it's true that we all think so much in terms of the, of the naughty parts, but it's, our, it's the affections of our heart. And this is the point. What we're doing with lust and sexuality is we're longing to know and be known. And that, that same language that the Bible uses to know your spouse, to know your married partner, is the same language to know him. And marriage is the closest thing we have this side of heaven to picturing what our life with the Father is, what our life with the Godhead is. And so the question then we have to ask ourselves is as we think about our sexuality, are we seeing it in that light? I'm going to make a few quick applications and then we'll talk about point two about this, the roots of, of adultery. Application. If you see marriage, or excuse me, if you see sex as the beer, right, as the thing at the end or the tea, then maybe you can begin to understand the teaching the Bible has on things like homosexuality, where it teaches that it's not biblical, where it teaches that, uh, where I, would, I want to urge, I urge my REF students, I would urge our college students and our single people, don't engage in premarital sex. Don't do that. Not just to be mean, though maybe it sounds mean, but because it's just going to make you feel married. And you can't even make, well, and it's sin. So that's one reason. But the reason it's sin is because you're giving up a part of yourself you're not really ready to give up. Right? You're, you're saying, here's a part of me that you're at the same time saying, but I'm not ready to commit to you. I want to be known, but I sort of don't want to be known. And it just muddies the water. Right? And the statistics prove that. So that's some application along the way. And let me also say, for those of us uh, in this room, and I always, I mean, if you're struggling with sexual struggles and sin, please bear with me. We're going to get somewhere with grace. So don't just get all upset and condemned and tune me out. But, but nonetheless, practically speaking, those are some truths I want to point out. Okay. So w- this, this idea of where it's coming from and what's behind adultery then is that ultimately adultery is against God, right? If indeed... It's my heart longing to be known and to know, then really it's the part of me that's really wanting God. Right? And so in the Old Testament, you see this word, as we see in Hosea, used for Israel abandoning God. Right? But it's not just in the Old Testament. In Paul in Ephesians 5, he gives this beautiful, every wedding has it, uh, explanation of how husbands 
Wives need to submit to their husbands, and husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And it's beautiful, and it's right, and it's true. And right at the end, he says, and by the way, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the kingdom of God, essentially. I'm talking about how you should be relating to your heavenly Father in Christ. Oh, and by the way, I'm still talking about marriage. And so what he's showing is that really what we have in in biblical marriage is a picture of what our relationship to God should be like in Christ. And so we come to Hosea. Here is Hosea, a prophet, a man of God, who's being told to go and marry a prostitute. Go out and find this woman and marry her and have children. And so we see Gomer, and especially in chapter 3, where she's assuming it's the same person. Thomas will let us know later if I've got that right or not. Because you do wonder, because it doesn't repeat her name, but here's chapter 3 of, of Hosea, where she is being, like the movie Taken, right? She's being auctioned off to the highest bidder, possibly naked, if not at least scantily clad, and completely shamed. And by the way, here's the saddest part, probably not worth a whole lot of money because of the lifestyle she had led, right? And here comes Hosea. Now imagine, you know, it's, he's probably just already feeling like, I have to go where? To what part of town? To what kind of room? To what kind of process to purchase a person? And he goes in, and he buys her for just a little bit of money. I'm not sure the exact amount. I can't translate all those words into modern dollars. But for pretty cheap considering, right? And the question is, do you relate to Gomer? How do you feel? Do you relate to her spiritually? How do you feel about your own spirituality? So we're moving now from physical adultery to really the root, because the root of physical adultery is our spiritual adultery to God. What's so amazing about the Bible is it always is pointing the finger at the church. In the Old Testament to the Jews, to Jerusalem, or to to Israel, and in the New Testament to the church. And it's pointing out that we are the ones who should be faithful to God, right? But we are the ones who are prone to wander. And so my question to you is, do you notice yourself spiritually wandering from God? Or maybe if I said it a different way, what is it you do long for? This is pretty simple. I mean, everybody in any room could write down what they really want. A lot of you really want to be out of here. You're like, get me out of here. Okay, 20 more minutes maybe. Okay. A lot, of, a lot of us, we get consumed by, of course, keeping on topic, sexual sin, lust, maybe sinful relationships that you're in or struggled with, but also our careers, right, our image, your comfort, how comfortable am I, both now or in general? We have things that we draw drawn to. I mean, yesterday, I'll be, I'll be honest with the Sooner, it exposes you, right? I'm like, that was like the biggest upset I, you'll ever see. And it exposes you. I put my hope in these young men, you know. Their, my, their whole job was to make me feel good about me. Um, and I've said before, the worst is when the wind comes. Because then you're like, dang, that didn't hit the spot. It got close, but I'm still empty. Okay, what is it you're longing for? What is it you are drawn to? Because here's the hard news for the morning, ready? The Bible, God, is telling us that if we know him and we grasp his faithfulness to us, he will be the one our hearts long for. So there's your diagnostic. Ready? 
Do you have that longing for God? Or is that something reserved for a few highly spiritual A handful of people that have lived have that love for God. The rest of us will never get there. So what we do is we just meander around loving the things we love, spending the time doing the things we want to do, and just hope against all hope that maybe in the end it will all work out. God is saying very clearly, He hates spiritual adultery of Israel. And I don't know all the sins they, they engaged in, but we know that the church, we are the best at looking the part. We are the best at playing the game, at learning the, the things we need to learn and, and showing up, like Shane said, looking the way we need to look before the confession. But do you see yourself as needing to confess? Do you, do you identify with Gomer? If not, I would say we need to be woken up, because we should. Right? Some of you might be thinking, well, that's a little bit extreme. Okay? But all through the New Testament, all through the Scriptures, God will say, Jesus will say things like, you cannot serve both God and mammon, money. He doesn't say you can serve God and serve money a little bit, just don't be really bad. There's always this perfect dichotomy. It's either all of one or all of the other. Right? And so the message of Hosea that we need to wake up to is that we are prone to serve our own passions, our own lusts, our own desires apart from God. And I hope that you'll understand right now the goal of this message is not to shame you for that, but to actually get you to begin to admit that. Are you even admitting that in your mind even now? Let's pretend you can admit it, but you don't care. That's fine. It's a start. Can you at least admit man, I really, I like God, but I really love blank. Can you at least admit that intellectually? I mean, start telling me on two. Okay, point three then. Here's the good news. There is a cure for adultery. That is good news. See, Gomer is who we identify with, but who's Hosea? Look at verses 8 again through 10. How can I give you up, God says, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God the Father loves His people. If you are a Christian, it is very not just possible, but highly likely you commit spiritual adultery all the time and God is saying, but I still love you. My heart is warm towards you. Do you believe that? He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy you. And I'm paraphrasing at this point. For I am God and not a man. What is he saying? In other words, if I were just a person, of course I would do that. But I'm God. I can show you mercy. And listen to verse 10. They, us, the church, shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Do you hear the lion's roar? You're Gomer, and there comes the lion, Hosea. Jesus is moving towards you. And he's moving towards you to purchase you. Now that only means something if you can already buy in, at least intellectually, to the fact that you don't really believe you're that bad. And yet, at the same time, you know you are. Right? And so now, Jesus is coming in, 
and you're seeing yourself ashamed on the auction block, mostly naked, and he's moving towards you. But he does something different than Hosea. He doesn't just give some money over to the, the person carrying out this auction. He takes you off, and he gets into the place. And so last week, we celebrated and, and looked at the, resur- the death of Christ, Good Friday, and the resurrection. But do you understand that he is saying, I am substituting myself for you. You deserve to be up here. You and I really are prostitutes spiritually. We really are. We really deserve damnation. We really deserve the shame and the guilt that we're so afraid might be real. And Jesus is coming in even when you don't want it. Again, I don't know if you've seen the movie Taken. It's not the most, hum- it's not the most amazing movie uh, spiritually, but it does have a good point of the gospel because you have Liam Neeson just going after his daughter at all costs. And when you find the daughter at the end, she's not like, oh, there's my dad. I'm a... She's just kind of drugged and in a daze. And I think that's what it looks like for us. In our spiritual stupor, Jesus can be moving toward us and we don't even see it. But he is. And he rescues. And he rescues by taking you off that platform and hanging on that cross for you. Unashamed and naked, taking on your sins. But what do you do? Do you receive him? And I'm not just now talking about the persons that aren't a Christian yet. I'm now talking to Christians. As a Christian, do you believe your Heavenly Father loves you? We're reading a book. They're going to have a discussion on this week called The Whole Christ. And I've asked a few people this question. It's on, and I won't go into detail, but one of the questions it's posing is this. Do you believe that Jesus loves you, but the Father only loves you because of Jesus? Or do you believe that the Heavenly Father loves you and sent Jesus in to rescue you? Do you see the difference? See, when I started to read that, I began to realize maybe from shame, I talked about shame last week, uh, you can look at your family of origin, you can look at a lot of stuff, but quite, it just in my sin of unbelief, I had found myself thinking, I don't think God the Father loves me. And the way I could tell is the very thought that he might begin to just feel profound. See, it's one thing to say Jesus loves you, and that's awesome to believe. That's, but sometimes I think we've worked ourselves into this theology where Jesus loved me because he's told to, and God accepts me because he has to. But that's not the biblical picture. God pursued you because he loved you from the foundation of time. If you're in Christ, that is true for you. And there is nothing you do to earn that. And when you're on that platform, you don't have to raise your hand or signal to Jesus that you're ready. He's coming for you. And if you're in Christ, he's already come for you. And he is a lion that has roared for you. And it's a beautiful picture. Of course, C.S. Lewis borrows it. But the problem I have with Narnia a little bit is sometimes Aslan is missing. Jesus is never missing. Anytime you want Jesus, he is with you. He's with you when you don't want him, and he's with you when you do. You're in Christ. Is that your reality? Is that your hope? Is that what you're saved by? Is your longing to be known by the Father in Christ? Let me be clear. You and I should feel toward him, this is weird, like we feel toward the things we lust after. The object is wrong, but the feeling is right. You follow me? We're supposed to love our Heavenly Father. I'm not trying to be weird. I'm just simply saying, let's quit being boring. 
Let's quit going, you know, Christianity means blah, 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 and then we get all excited about the other stuff in life. Why can't we get excited about Jesus? And the answer is because that's not where my heart is longing for. I'm looking for other things to define me. So, let's bring this back to marriage. I know I'm already past 30 minutes. I'm going to wrap this up. Do you love your spouse if you're married? You can't love your spouse rightly if you don't love Jesus and, he's not, and you don't see yourself as loved by the Father. Conversely, if that's your number one relationship, then you can actually begin to love your spouse no matter how, di- and they are, no matter how difficult they may seem to love. You love. And you're difficult too to love, and so am I, I'm the worst. So we need Jesus to be driving this relationship. If you are one of those blessed people who just sort of have the right chemistry and Jesus isn't really in the mix, it's going to get empty pretty soon. You need Jesus. If you've been married a long time and your marriage is growing, then I, then I say, great, keep Christ at the center of that relationship. Vulnerability, confession of sin, sex, you need to be having it. There's a pastor I read about in Texas who said, I'm trying to tell the young people to stop having sex and tell the old people to start having sex. Amen. <laughs> sex should be getting better. I want Those of you that aren't married, it's really weird in the beginning, and the older you get, it gets better. My children are in the room, I'm very sorry, but that's the way it works. When there's bumps in the road, look at the marriage. Did I mow the lawn right? I mean, you know what I'm saying with the beer analogy? In other words, are we loving each other? Are we getting along? Um, it's, this is awkward, but it's one of the reasons why people, after they've had a fight and they make up, often will do things. They'll have a beer. Because it's kind of brought them back to that unity and that union together. Single people. Sex is not an end all. You ask a married person, say, it's the greatest thing being naked with your wife, and they're going to go, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's great, but that's not everything. So young people, sex isn't everything. It's a picture of the whole picture. So make sure that you're pursuing Christ first, or rather being pursued by Christ and accepting his pursuit and finding him to be everything. And when you look for a spouse, make sure they love Jesus like you do. Because when you're in an argument, if you don't have that in common, it will go very poorly very quickly. Because even when you do have that in common, it's difficult. But if you can't repent and confess your sin and grow, then it's going to be difficult. If you are single... I feel like a hypocrite because I am not. And we have very dear friends. Emily and I have very, several very dear friends who, uh, one of our good friends is a, a lady that she went to school or college with. Godly woman, beautiful woman who is not married and it just drives her nuts. And she's 38 and it breaks her heart and it's the story of her life. And part of me doesn't feel worthy of even talking into that life because I'm married and so I feel like a hypocrite. But as a pastor, I have to speak into it. And all I can say, as bad as it may sound to those of you that are single, is if God is number one, then we can withstand any pain we face. And it is painful. And please understand, it's not because you're not lovable, but it's because we live in a fallen world. Some people just get married to the wrong person early, and it's a tough go. Some are single forever. There's some marriages that seem good. We're all fallen, and it's difficult, and it's dark, but it will be better with Christ. Is he your number one? love? Is God your number one pursuit? And understand that no matter how what age you are, God will bring you the right person if that's his will. And if it's not, be, let's say together, it is well with my soul that we long for him. We long for glory. We long for heaven. So, 
Was it awkward? A little bit? A little shame? A little weirdness? All right. Coleman, how was that? We'll talk later. All right. I do want to finish by just saying, if you have committed adultery, or you struggle with lust, and I'm talking now about physical or pornography, I would say, know that the gospel is big enough to heal you. There is confession, there is healing, there is growth. I would be glad, I long to talk to you guys and gals through that, or we can find people to talk to if you don't want to talk to me, however you want to do it. But we want to point us to Christ and his mercy and healing. There is healing in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you pursued us by sending Jesus a lion who came roaring to our rescue. Forgive us for talking about the crucifixion so often that we forget how painful it was. Forgive us that for Jesus, the agony of being separated from you for even a moment, even a day, or two days, or three days, whatever length of time, however that all worked, was agony for him. Forgive us for thinking that that's the normal life we live. That maybe we come to you one day a week. Teach us to be brokenhearted by that separation from you. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Teach us to repent. Teach us to cry out, to say, Lord, help my unbelief. I know I'm supposed to love you, but I don't. I love these other things. Teach us to be able to confess that to you, Lord. Spirit, would you help us be brokenhearted and not numb? Would you teach us to long for union with you? To, teach, to understand that to be known by you and to know you is the greatest relationship. And Lord, that that would be the driving burning of our heart daily and that we would long for heaven when we are reunited to you face to face. Your bride. Lord, let that drive all of our human relationships, all of our earthly relationships and especially our marriages. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.